I worked with a pastor uh, when I was a young youth pastor, and he was notorious for reviewing the previous week's sermon. It was, uh, he would actually spend the whole first half of his message telling the congregation what they had learned previously. A lot of you might recall this, and you might recall that, whether we did this and we talked about that, and you, you could honestly go to sleep and just ask someone to wake you up in 20 minutes when he would say, and this brings us to where we left off and where we're picking up today. I remember being in the overflow room. It was just me and one other lady uh, watching uh, the service in this overflow room, and in, in a moment of brutal honesty, she said, it's actually kind of nice because you only have to come every other Sunday and you'll get the same message. <laughs> With that said, we're going to do a little bit of review this morning. <laughs> we're going to review beginning at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 3 of Matthew. And that being because... It is where we're introduced to John the Baptist, who is baptizing. That's why he's called John the Baptist. He's baptizing a baptism of repentance, of preparation for the Messiah. So we start in verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he was preaching. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet. This is Matthew um, writing about John the Baptist. It's he who's spoken of by the prophet. Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And as I like to do, as we like to do, as one of our convictions about handling God's word is that it should be applied to daily life. We look at this primarily in how we should apply this, and we looked at it in terms of the fact that we need to recognize sin as rebellion. This is the preparation of a person's heart for salvation. For, for continued repentance and growth, to recognize sin as rebellion. We talked about how, how ridiculous it would be for a person to, to be the only one, even, living in the kingdom that, that, or, or in an expanded kingdom that has taken over their land and everything has converted over to that kingdom. And yet they're sitting there in their house saying, nope, I still serve the other king. As John was telling them, the kingdom of heaven is here. It is at hand. Don't be rebellious, but repent. They gave us some description of John in the, in the likeness of Elijah. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So it's describing his reach at this time, at that present location. 
And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we see that aspect of repentance is an admittance, it's an agreement with God. I am wrong, you are right about these things. We continue on, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This was why they thought they were righteous enough. Because they were Jews. And if you recall, what was amazing about what John was doing was he was baptizing Jews with the same type of ceremony, the same type of action that Jews only reserved for Gentiles that wanted to become Jews. Communicating that as a part of repentance, they needed to be washed, not from their Jewishness, but from uh, something deeply within who they are. Something that Jews would reserve for other kinds of people. And it says, and do not presume, he says to the, these Pharisees and Sadducees, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we applied this by saying we must stop insulting God with our self-righteousness. Think about in that that same idea of of that one lone uh, individual that's saying, I don't care if this kingdom has taken over my land, I still serve the king that was toppled. This, this, you know, if it's my property, this, this uh, 0.35 acres that I own, it's my kingdom. And, and no one may enter it without going through my immigration services. Well, once the authorities showed up and the person was like, just try it. Just try to, to, to pull me out of my house. Just try to, to, to get me to, to abide by your laws. That's similar to the type of self-righteousness that, that a person would, ex, would be displaying when they're told the kingdom of God is at hand and they're saying, but I'm good. I mean, excellent. I'll, I'll uh, throw out the welcome mat because obviously he's going to want to come to my house. That's the self-righteousness that these Jews actually had. These Jewish leaders... Later, they would display such a self-righteousness that their disbelief in Jesus as being the Messiah had to do with the fact that they the way they understood it was when the Messiah comes, uh, he's going to come get us. He's going to come. He's going to want us on his council. He's going to want to be one of. He's going to be want us as his disciples. We must stop insulting God with our self-righteousness. As John the Baptist was warning these Jewish leaders. 
He goes on to say in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenching fire. This is the second time that John the Baptist uses the example of something that is useless to a farmer or to an, a, a vine dresser or, or an a, uh, orchard keeper. Chaff, that, that the husk that falls off of the grain or, or the, the uh, fruitless branches of a tree. And this is a, twice he talks about them being cast into the fire. In this context of speaking of the danger of self-righteousness when the kingdom of God is at hand. We took from this, everyone will yield to King Jesus or to judgment. Everyone is going to either yield to King Jesus as their Savior or to judgment. So this brings us to where we left off. That's a real convenient statement. I appreciate that pastor I worked with. So we come to Matthew, the rest of Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, where we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee. There's a lot of talk about Jesus leading up to this statement. There's talk about his, the, the lineage, his ancestors, the genealogy that he comes from. There is talk about uh, him being, having been given birth to. And I'll explain why that's kind of an awkward thing with Matthew. There's a talk about people visiting him. There's talk about him being swept away and things like that. But here we actually see him taking action. For the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, meaning John the Baptist said, whatever you say. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have one of those scenarios that is very hard for those people that do not believe in the Trinity. As, much, as hard as it is to understand. That we see the triune God in his three persons showing up in the same place. So in the process, I like to share with you kind of just some simple Bible study steps that I take. Because part of it is I like to demystify Bible study. I, I want you to know you can study the Bible. And you can draw some, some pretty amazing things from it 
If you draw something off that no one has ever seen in all of Christendom, you know, set that aside. Um, but you can draw some amazing things from God's word through some pretty simple steps. And so I was just doing a simple thing of outlining verse 13. And so when I'm outlining something, when I'm diagramming it, what I want to know is what's the subject and the verb? All right? So, so the subject and the verb here is Jesus came. Jesus came. Jesus showed up. He arrived. And the rest of these dependent clauses are from Galilee, his origin, uh, to the Jordan, his destination, to John, his more specific destination, to be baptized by him, the purpose of his coming there. But the main statement here, if you strip everything away, is Jesus arrived. Jesus came. And so I start kind of asking myself, that's interesting. I wonder where else this word has been used. Specifically this, uh, I think it's prosgenomai in, in the original language, this term. It's used prior to this two times. And after this, no more in the Gospel of Matthew. So that kind of perks my interest. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, the term gets used three times in Matthew. And you can see here upon the screen, we see in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Then John the Baptist is introduced in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then we see in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee. Another thing that kind of stuck out to me is all three of these instances are kind of the beginning of something significant. You notice that? Chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and then this section of chapter 3. So these things are like bells are going off. Do you see why our message is titled, When the King Arrives? When the King when Jesus showed up, when Jesus finally came. I'd always wondered why Matthew is so brief, right? He describes Jesus' birth like a man gives the details of a birth, right? No weight, no length, no middle name. In Matthew 1, whereas Luke is giving the whole explanation of Joseph and Mary and kind of their love story and the, the tension of it and, and um, the, the, uh, no, there not being any room in the inn and all of that, the human side of Jesus' story, Matthew gives a very simple, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, uh, speaking of Joseph, and it's really not even speaking about Jesus, it's speaking about Joseph, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son. And I believe that I understand now why that is. Because the point he wants to make about Jesus is when Jesus came, when he arrived, what led up to that. He's laying around out instead in these chapters the arrival of King Jesus. His birth was marked by the arrival of his royal entourage at his childhood home in Bethlehem. He stepped out of the spotlight 
until he was preceded by the arrival of his very own prophet, paving the way. And Jesus certainly came differently than one would expect. But don't start thinking that he came in an insignificant way or that he didn't do significant things. John was the greatest, we're told, of the Old Testament prophets. And he proclaimed a message of nothing less than total surrender and willingness to yield to King Jesus. That was the proclamation. That was the red carpet that God the Father was rolling out And that Matthew is explaining when he finally says, then Jesus came. Jesus arrived. So we finally see this morning how Jesus arrives ready to do all that is necessary to complete his mission. And we'll see that next week when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil as well. As of what we see happen when Jesus arrives, I want to challenge you with this. Ready your heart for Jesus' arrival. Ready your heart for Jesus' arrival. We read that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John here is preventing him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come and To me? But Jesus answered him, Let it it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. First, let's get an idea of what Jesus came to do um, or came from and went to in this situation. With this map, uh, you can see that that bottom section is Judea. If you recall from the beginning of the chapter, it says that Jews were coming from all of Judea and the Jordan Valley. But Jesus comes all the way from up in Galilee. Now, John did have an outreaching ministry and things like that. You can read in Acts 19 that there were even some Ephesians that were baptized by John. Um, from there from Ephesus in Asia Minor. But Jesus traveled from Galilee to where John was baptizing at that time in Judea for the purpose of John baptizing him. And why does Jesus insist on being baptized by John? I mean, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. He certainly doesn't have anything that he has done, thought, or said that he would need to repent of. How do we know that for certain? God the Father tells us that. And we'll get to that. But rather, he did so. He's baptized by John. He insists on it in order to identify with the people who would believe on him and be saved. We, we, we miss the idea, and it would have been among the Pharisees. It wouldn't have been among the Sadducees. We miss the idea that among the Pharisees and their disciples, there were a plethora Don't ask me if I know what a plethora is. Um, There are a plethora of of messianic ideas. There are a plethora, uh, a whole range of theories about what are we waiting for from the Messiah? When is he going to come? What is he going to do? It is not a monolithic. It is not just a single theory about the Messiah among the Jewish leaders. So for Jesus to show up and to say, this man who is teaching about the Messiah and baptizing Jews 
for repentance, after the confession of sins, he's the one. Okay, so, so that's a large part of what is going on here. Why does John object to baptizing Jesus? There's certain an element of Jesus outranking John. And John already tells us, I am not even worthy to be his slave, which is what a servant, a slave would have done. A slave would have carried the sandals of his master. But John also is recognizing that the baptism of, that Jesus brings, a baptism with the Holy Spirit, it, it supersedes his baptism. But I think that we also see the confirmation here that it comes through repentance. Jesus explains that John baptizing him will fulfill all righteousness. And one aspect of this is referencing the mission that Jesus has for his life and his death and his resurrection to count for those who would trust in him for salvation. He had to cover all the bases in order for his life and death and resurrection to count for us. And Jesus' request surprises the one that was the best prepared to know God's bigger plan, in my opinion. John the Baptist. It's a surprise. But John submits to Jesus' wishes, not necessarily because he understands. He simply trusts the person that gave him the orders. Why? Because this guy's kingdom has come. Get lined up underneath it, is what he's been Preaching the whole time. And now he's walking the talk. So I challenge you then, get your heart ready for Jesus' arrival. When Jesus shows up in a significant way, he will do what fits his plan for his glory. And it coming from the infinite mind of God, expect your finite mind to be surprised by it, to be confused by it, to say, wait, God, I, this is outside of what I thought you were. It's not going to be outside of what his word tells us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but make sure and know it's going to be outside of what our minds understand. When Jesus shows up in a significant way, he does what fits his plan for his glory. And it's only by having a tender heart and an open mind that you will know the full blessing of his arrival. You know, I love um, uh, Mike Church shared his testimony at the men's retreat a year ago, and I had heard it, you know, before that. And, and um, some of you know uh, Caleb Hurt. In, in town. And Mike shares as a part of his testimony that, that Caleb was, was a constant witness at work, was, was a, a just um, a witness for the Lord, good days, bad days. And, and I asked Mike his permission this weekend about sharing this. I, I try to always do that. But, um, and Mike was so resistant to it. And, and and um, maybe even to the point of making fun of him a little bit, right? <laughs> maybe. 
But you know, when God moved in Mike's life and brought him to the place of realizing, I'm not living in my world. I'm living in somebody else's world because my stuff doesn't work. Caleb was ready and willing to lead Mike through that. To say, of course that invitation to church is still open. Of course I'm available to talk. Caleb was faithful to represent Jesus and to allow the Lord to use him in Jesus' perfect timing. We experience Jesus' arrival, Jesus' timing, in a lot of different points, at a lot of different points. As a part of salvation, that proclamation is still true. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we are still the same self-righteous people before knowing Christ. I mean, it is amazing how uh, any part of the earth, humanity still thinks I can be good enough. And it's only by us realizing I've been living by the, a completely different set of laws. And I've been living in God's kingdom. And there's a lot for me to repent of. Jesus showing up in, in a saving way doesn't take place in a way that usually people expect. It's not the response of a, the goodness of our hearts and the attractiveness of our good deeds. It is while we were sinners that Jesus died for us. And it's usually at our lowest points that he gets our attention. I've been re, uh, reading a biography of uh, Martin Luther and I won't, I won't be as crass as he is, but he basically tells us that Jesus meets us in the outhouse of our lives. And Jesus arrives at, even as we're walking in a relationship with God. That's what we're talking about as well. A daily walk with the Lord should be just that, daily and with the Lord Jesus And we should expect for God to guide us, confront our pride, lead us in how to glorify Him. And it is only with our hearts that are tender, hearts that are tender toward Him, and a willingness to change that will grow in Him. It is only by guarding your heart against the deception of our culture and allowing God to guide your heart with His Word that you will get the full blessing of walking in a relationship with Christ on a daily basis, preparing for his arrival morning after morning. We also prepare, we should prepare for his arrival, awaiting the returning Christ. We're still waiting for Jesus' final arrival when the king arrives. And when he does Will he find you faithful to him and in his service? The kingdom of God is still here, but it is also, in its fullest sense, it is just around the corner. And you have got to live in the knowledge 
of this reality. We have five values in our home. It's, and one of those is remember heaven. It's love the king. We're going to start it this way. Love the king. Care for others. Remember heaven. Do your best. And have fun. Remember heaven. It will appear in the twinkling of an eye. Along with readying your heart for Jesus' arrival, I want to challenge you to receive Jesus as the Lord God himself. That, that is what we are confronted with here. If you think in terms of, in Matthew, rolling out the truth about Christ, Jesus arrives and he is there in the presence of the Trinity. And the confirmation and commendation of the Holy Spirit and God the Father. We read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is, as I mentioned, an appearance of the triune God in one place. The term Trinity is simply our best effort of understanding, and it falls awfully short. But there's, I don't know if there's a better understanding. Because we're working with finite minds and we're trying to get them around the infinite God. Okay? If you have a, a pen with your notes here and you want to kind of jot down an understanding here of the Trinity, I'm going I'm to give you something to draw, okay? All right? Find a, find a spot with a couple inches open around it. Right in the middle, write one God. One God. You know... The children of Israel told from very young childhood, Behold, our God is one. Okay? Monotheism is what we're talking about here. One God. Put a circle around that. And then three different spots, kind of away from that, write Holy Spirit. If you want, I usually write HS, you know. And then Father. And then Son. So this would be like three different directions coming off of one God. Okay? So we've got Holy Spirit, Father, Son. Now, arrows going toward the term one God, that circle there, draw little arrows coming from each one of those persons. They're not humans, but they are persons, meaning they have personality. Okay, so they got arrows going toward the one God. Now, with each of those arrows, right next to the arrow is. The Holy Spirit is the one God. The Father is the one God. The Son is the one God. All right, tracking with me here? Now, next, draw a little arrow going from one to the other. You know, so you got from the Son, you got an arrow going to the Father, and arrow going to the Holy Spirit, and you got an arrow going between. Holy Spirit and Father, so you know, got three arrows there with arrows on both sides. 
With those, with those arrows, you simply write, is not. Is not. Is not. See, the Father is the one God. The Holy Spirit is the one God. The Son is the one God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. That's the best shot I can give you of a picture. All right? And you're going to say, but what about this? Yeah, that's, I get it. This is the best we're doing with our finite minds here. God the Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove and lands on Jesus. And John wasn't necessarily astonished by what he saw here. I think he was, he was excited. We know this because he says in John chapter 1, verse 33, and we'll talk about this more after Jesus' temptation because that's where it happens chronologically, that John says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who... Um, comes baptizing. I don't have the rest of it here. This is him. And there's a huge historical significance to the Spirit's involvement in this way. See, the Spirit of God was very active in the Old Testament. You know, we have people say, well, if God just kind of showed up to me like he did to the children of Israel, then I would believe in him. The Spirit of God was very active in the Old Testament. By the time of Jesus' baptism, most in Israel had decided that the Spirit's days of activity were over. You might recall that John is the first prophet to speak for God in 400 years. We call it the 400 silent years. And Jesus' anointing, the Holy Spirit's anointing of Jesus in this way, came as an inauguration of the age of the Messiah. It was a visible sign that the kingdom of heaven had indeed come. This certainly is fulfilling the prophecy of the Messiah. In Isaiah 11 verse 2, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We don't, we don't know how many people were able to see this Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, but all that did would have understood this fulfillment of Isaiah 11 here. And this is why Jesus would tell Nicodemus, he whom, the God, whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And we'll read in Matthew 12 how, G, how Jesus himself would be filled with the Spirit and would, would, as a part of that, would be fulfilling the prophecy of the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. We read in Matthew 12, starting verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew is explaining Jesus' is fulfilling Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 
So it was a very clear understanding that the one on whom the Holy Spirit would come would be the Messiah. As if the the appearance of the Holy Spirit's anointing Jesus isn't enough, God the Father speaks. And he speaks a statement of endorsement and love for God the Son in, in flesh, incarnate, incarnated in flesh. As I mentioned, there's something pragmatic to this as well. Okay? If you recall, Jesus has disappeared for 30 years. As far as having a gospel biographer tracking with him, right? I mean, we we know he was brought from Egypt to Nazareth after the death of Herod. And then we're told, and John the Baptist shows up. And Jesus is at least 30 years older at this point. So how is it that, that he doesn't need to repent? How is it that he has no sins to confess as a part of this baptism? God the Father tells us so. This is his son with whom he is well pleased. He's verified. Or in the... Uh, O brother, why art thou terminology? He's bona fide. But also his words scream of the final heir of David's throne from the prophetic coronation psalm of Psalm 2, where where he says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Is the king or, or, or the, uh, the, the, uh, is God saying of this coronated king, you're born today? No. Is he saying you were somebody else and you've become this today? No, he's saying you are being uh, coronated. The crown is sitting on your head. And in the same way, using the same term, God the Father is saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As a part of his proclamation, God the Father testifies that Jesus is the Messiah that will reign on the throne of King David. He is the Son of God, and he is to bear the sins of his people because he alone is fully pleasing to the Father. He alone, having no sin of his own, and not having the original sin of Adam because he didn't have a human father. He alone could be our Savior from our sins. Thus, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's bringing the full presence and plan of the triune God to bear. So I challenge you then, when Jesus arrives in your life, receive him as the Lord God himself. You know, we see many different approaches to military readiness, and threats of, of, of foreign entities. The U.S. military tracked this week a Chinese spy balloon as it traveled across the continental United States. And they actually had started tracking it as soon as it came into the Pacific arena. And the Air Force has interceptor jets uh, this is not conspiracy theory stuff. Just go, go home and read a news you know, 
paper. It, this took place. The, the, the Air Force has interceptor jets that are constantly ready for dealing with any threats of this kind. And many wonder why our leaders allowed for this balloon to cross our entire country before doing something about it, finally shooting it down over the beach in uh, South Carolina, I believe. Now, on the other hand, we had a president recently that would threaten foreign nations with a tweet of wiping them off the map with nuclear weapons. And many had wondered if they needed to keep him as far away as possible from the launch codes. The fact is, is that there are different approaches to power. I hope that I don't see in my lifetime the full force of the America's military might come to bear. It'll probably be the last thing I see if I did. The full power of God Almighty is within the very fingertips of Jesus Christ. He set aside his right to use it as he bid while he was walked on this earth. And we'll, and we'll see, we don't want to get into that too much here. But when you're tempted to think of Jesus as just one of the many religious options out there, recall Colossians 2, verses 9 through 10. In him, the whole fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And then he goes on and say in verse 10, an amazing aspect of having a relationship with God through Christ, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The, the, even the power of the America's joint military forces is nothing compared to the power of the triune God that Jesus wields. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's Colossians 2 verse 10. So all this reminds me of a statement that I've shared with you before. Jesus lived the life that we are called to live. We are called to live the same way that Jesus lived. Jesus lived in complete submission to God the Father and in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. And that is the life that we are called to live what Jesus is about is, God, is what God wants you to be about. And we're going to accomplish this in the same way that Jesus accomplished it. We're going to live for God's glory, submitted to God's will, and guided by his Holy Spirit. Plain and simple. But this moment with John the Baptist was only the beginning. His mission would take him to the cross. That's what these next three years are about for Christ. Achieving salvation for a people, for God. That is our God. Our God dying for us after living for us.
Let's bow our heads. Lord, there are times when we're amazed and we may even doubt that you would be listening to us right now. Because our hearts are sinful. Even with having been saved by you, even with having your Holy Spirit active in our lives, we still have so far to go. But we thank you that you walk with us through all of it. And Lord, we are tempted to think that how could you hear each one of our prayers at the same time? We can't do that. It would drive us nuts. We're not you. And I'm glad you're not us. Father, I pray that you would arrive in a special way for each one of us here this week. Maybe in salvation. Maybe in a morning devotions. Maybe even in the clouds, Lord. I pray that when you do, that you would find us ready. Ready for whatever you have. Fully submitted to you, Lord. And we ask that you would give us the hearts to do that. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.